This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And after a few weeks off, we're back with our Halloween episode. And for this Halloween episode, we're going to be covering Candyman. And then we're also going to be covering Candyman. So not to confuse you, we will be covering the original Candyman, which was made in 1992, and also the recent reimagining from 2021. And, as we said previously, we're going to be delving into both versions of Candyman, starting off with the 1992 version. The synopsis for which is provided by Chris Makrizahopoulos. You said it better than I did. (laughs) So, this synopsis details, Helen Lyle is a student who decides to write a thesis about local legends and myths. She visits a part of the town where she learns about the legend of Candyman, a one-armed man who appears when you say his name five times in front of a mirror. Of course, Helen doesn't believe all this stuff, but the people of the area are really afraid. When she ignores their warnings and begins her investigation in the places that he is rumoured to appear, a series of horrible murders begin. Could the legend be true? Well, usually when the legend is kind of said to be true or not usually something bad happens and the legend does turn out to be true to a certain extent so yeah it kind of it kind of pans out that way i think there's if you're in this sort of movie you kind of realize that something bad is going to happen and the legend is going to start to become true doesn't do it in quite the same way that you think it's going to but um yeah this is one that i've revisited it was quite a while since i'd seen the original uh, and i've revisited it recently because we were going to do it on the podcast. And one thing that struck me is that it's not quite as gory as I remembered it to be. That's really interesting. So um, I rewatched the movie from the lovely Arrow video box set, which contains two versions. It's got the US R-rated version and um, the original UK theatrical version. So the reason I watched the UK theatrical version was because it was a brand new restoration of um, the original UK theatrical version featuring alternate, more graphic footage. And then I um, looked into it a bit more like deeply and I went to my go-to guy on YouTube, which is Minty Comedic Arts, who's recently done a um, 10 facts about Candyman video. There was discussion in his video about the original NC-17 rating over in the US and it was incredibly gory in the scene where Helen is in the um, psychiatrist's office and she summons Candyman and then suddenly the um, psychiatrist gets killed quite brutally and bloodily. 
USA um, sensors decided to cut this down so you don't see it as much. But for some reason, the UK showed it all intact. So I found that really interesting. And as Minty um, explains in his video, it's normally the UK that are more bothered by these things than in the US, especially like in the wake of the video nasties. So, you know, we'd come quite far out of video nasties by this point, but it was about to go on a second wave the following year um, with Charles Play 3. But it's interesting how they allowed Candyman to um, be released in its uh, full bloody glory, which is which is really interesting. So that's the only scene that I'm aware of that they heavily cut. But another thing that's interesting with going to talking about the new Candyman movie, that's rated 15. And I don't think there was much difference in the depictions of gore in either films, but it just shows how nowadays they try to um, make, like, they rate horror movies a lot less just to get um, teenage audiences in. Yeah. I mean, it's bloody. Some of the violence is pretty nasty, but it's not... I don't know I don't know how I remembered it to be nastier than it was. I mean, it's not particularly tame either. And I think the depictions of violence, it's the thought of it which is nastier than what you actually see most of the time. I don't think it needs to be a particularly gory movie. I think it stands on the strength of its plot and the characters. Another thing was that I know that a lot of people have said about the new one, they said, oh, it's very woke and it's politicised and it's talking a lot about race and gentrification and all that kind of stuff. Did they not see the first movie? Because that's all about race and gentrification and politicisation, about how black people are marginalised. And I, if people are saying that the first one was just a straightforward slasher, well, you can take it as a straightforward slasher, I guess, the first one. But there's an awful lot going on under the surface. And I don't know how any of these people missed that if they've seen the first one. Yeah, that's really bizarre to me. I felt that the new movie complemented the um, original movie very, very well. I like that it expanded the whole mythology of Candyman. It puts it in a new perspective. So after seeing the new movie and rewatching the original, like I had different things going on in my mind. I was seeing it in a new light because, yeah, we're going to go into spoilers in this. There's no way we can um, have a good discussion without going yeah. into spoilers. So if you haven't seen either movie, go watch them, then come back to us because we're going to be spoiling everything in great detail. Yeah, I think that it was very clever how they did it all. So in the new movie, we have Anthony McCoy as the um, protagonist. Or is he the antagonist? Could be that's either. Yeah, that's up to the audience to decide. But of course, he um, was an original character from the 1992 film, but he was a baby. But he does have a very important role in the first movie. So it's interesting to follow an original character grown up and how basically, you know, he's lived his life. He's an artist um, he's in a relationship with an art gallery, like curator, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. he's getting on with his life. And then of course his um, horrible history returns in an unexpected way as he um, very much like Helen Lyle in the original becomes obsessed with the legend of Candyman. But there's so much more that's explored. And, of course, when I think of Candyman, of course you're going to see Tony Todd in that role. Like in the original film, he, his character was a slave who fell in love with a white woman and um, he was brutally murdered. And then, of course, um, he's a restless spirit from that. So you have that in the original. But then there's an extension where 
other people can become Candyman as well. And that just blew my mind a little bit. Because when it first starts, you've got um, this little boy who is terrorised by a Candyman who just appears through the wall with a hook for his hand and then he inadvertently screams and then there is basically um, a racial, racially motivated murder taking place. And then you think, oh, they've just changed the story here. So they, they're just remaking it. They've just gone through a different route with who the Candyman is, but it doesn't quite work that way. And I just, I just thought it was really clever. I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, yeah, same here. I, I thought it was a very clever way of taking the story onwards and looking back and using the source material to build on with the new one. And the fact that the Helen Lyle myth had been taken and warped and hadn't really... It's its the, that kind of thing as, as a myth gets passed down. It's that thing where people will add things and take things away and change things. So when you come to the Helen Lyle story in the new one, it's not quite what the Helen Lyle story was in the first one. So you've got this whole kind of viewpoint where people will take a legend and then they will put their own spin on it. And sometimes they will make it worse and sometimes they will add things in to suit a particular agenda. So I think there's a lot in the new movie which is extremely clever. And I think one of the other things that the new movie has got going for it, even though it probably isn't to everybody's taste, is that it doesn't kind of soft pedal any of the gore but it shies away from quite a lot of the horror it sort of downplays it it's more interested with how the story is progressing and how the characters are obsessed with the legend that's not to say that there isn't any gore in it the art gallery murder is extremely gory but there are some points in the movie where it's confident enough to give you just enough of a thrill during the kill sequences but then pulls back. There's a really good one. Well, I thought it was a really good one. Anyway, I've had a discussion with somebody since who thought it was a terrible murder sequence. There's a sequence where you see it in long shots in the in the building of in the window of a skyscraper, and you see it in a very very you see it very very far away, but it still gives you enough of a hint as to what's going on. Now, I thought that was a really bold move because they could have had it really gory, really bloodthirsty, really up close, but you're just seeing this at a distance. Now, I thought that was excellent. Now, the person I was discussing it with said, oh, it's a terrible murder sequence because you don't see anything. It's like, well, you know. And this this is what I think is going to happen with this movie. I think because it's got a very specific approach, I think anybody coming in expecting a straightforward, gory slasher movie, well, they may not be disappointed, but it's not what they're going to find in this because it's a horror movie, but it's got more of a social conscience and it's trying to make more satirical points about things like the art world and about how they commodify people's ethnicity. Because at the start, uh, Anthony is actually making a living on the back that he is a black artist and he has something to say. And at that point, that happens to be what's in. And you've got this art gallery owner saying, well, it's because you're a black artist that people are interested in you. So there's all this kind of subtle stuff going on under the surface where it's making a lot of points about what it means to be black uh, in today's society and how it can be cool but people can exploit it for their own ends and of course it doesn't shy away from the fact that quite a large part of the plot is as you say racially motivated violence specifically racially motivated violence by the forces of law and order 
Yeah, and of course, um, Jordan Peele, we have to mention him, uh, produced the uh, recent Candyman. He's obviously one of the genre's like best voices currently, in my opinion. He's made two incredible horror movies so far. So if you're on board with Get Out and Us, I don't know how you can have gone into this knowing with Jordan Peele on board. I know he didn't direct this, but that there would be a definitive like social commentary going on. So I'm not sure why people didn't expect that. And again, as we previously mentioned with the original film, that has a political edge. It had a statement to make about race. So Candyman is different from all, all the other horror monsters. It's not just a straightforward slasher. As you say, you can look at it in that way, but there's just so much more going on with it. And that's what makes it more interesting and, for me, makes it stand out. Both movies are highly atmospheric. They build. Both of them build. They don't just go for the gore straight up. They both take their time. And it's just that whole psychological horror it's got going for it as well. It gives you enough time to build in your imagination, oh, who is the Candyman and what's he going to look like? Funny enough, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent going back here a bit. So when I was in primary school, I first heard about Candyman, not the movie as such, the legend. And this is really fascinating because Candyman is technically not a real urban legend. He is um, based on two things, Bloody Mary and the Hookman. And it has emerged from a short story written by Clive Barker called The Forbidden. And this story was originally set in Liverpool and it was, again, centred on British social class. But when um, Clive Barker started working with Bernard Rose, who directed the original, they decided to rework the story to be set in Cabrini Green because they just wanted it to focus on race and social class in inner city America. I didn't know Candyman was a black man. I didn't. I had just had this image, Candyman, he must be someone who like sells ice cream or sweets or something. That, I had that image in my mind and I genuinely thought it was a real urban legend. So it wasn't until I was a teenager and I rented Candyman on VHS, that's when I became acquainted with properly what it was. So as I say, it's that idea that you have, once you hear about something, it's in your mind and it builds and builds. And I like how the first one takes its time before they reveal him. Yeah, it's very clever in the fact that it leads you along a little bit. It kind of gives you plenty of time to get to know the characters. It has more of a focus really on on Helen Lyle really in the first half hour it it shows you her place of work and it shows you her research and her friends and her husband who you suspect is a bit of a bad egg well he turns out to be a bad egg but he does get his comeuppance later in the movie but yeah it's more to do with what we believe and what we don't believe about urban legends and then Helen makes the mistake of saying Candyman's name five times in a row and then very gradually the nightmare gets more and more pronounced and she's dropped into a situation where she is the focus of a series of very gruesome murders and she's trying to convince people that this is a mythical figure that's uh, committing the murders when she keeps turning up in these murder scenes with like either grabbing knives or cleavers or anything. In any other hands, you look at this story and you think, that's kind of it's kind of daft, this story. But the way that it's dealt with by both Clive Barker and Bernard Rose, you never feel that the story is cheap in any way. It's very, very powerful. It's really atmospheric, as you said. 
it's got a really great score by Philip Glass. The music in the first Candyman is amazing. And it's got a really brilliant performance from Virginia Madsen in the lead role. Virginia Madsen is a really expressive actress and you feel pretty much everything that she goes through. And as a portrayal of kind of mental breakdown, because at some point she really is kind of, she's gone through the mill and and a, a very psyche is on the line. It's not that kind of performance where it's pop-eyed, it's, it's kind of hysterics, it's screaming. I mean, God love him, I'm thinking Jack, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. I mean, I love his performance in The Shining, but, you know, he's crackers from minute one in The Shining. Whereas this is kind of, it's somebody fighting against the fact that, is she going insane? She's seeing a killer who nobody else is seeing. It's, it's a really great performance from Virginia Madsen. She's called upon to do some pretty gross stuff as well, and she's pretty up for all of this. Uh, yeah, I mean, it helps that, I mean, I'm, I could pretty much watch Virginia Madsen in anything, but I think in terms of her performances, this is still one of her better ones. She's great in pretty much everything, but this, this is probably up there with the best performances that she's done. I do also like uh, Casey Lemons as a research partner, and I'm still creeped out and disappointed and upset when she gets killed off i mean i know it's coming but i still think you know she's a really sympathetic character and i think part of the fact is that because she's so sympathetic horror law kind of says well you know she has to die really and she does and it's very gruesome yeah definitely no i know what you mean like you do feel a bit sad when she does die because um she's kind of like a bit of a voice of reason as well throughout and i think she's that sense of security as well for helen like you know safety in numbers because they both go and uh, visit cabrini green together when they're first researching and she kind of stands back and lets helen do the thing but it's also protecting her a little bit as well yeah virginia madsen is incredible in this performance um she actually underwent hypnosis in the scene in the parking lot where she first um, confronts Candyman. So what they wanted to do for that scene, instead of having someone screaming and just something over the top, they just went for that, you know, he was this very kind of, I suppose there's an element of Candyman that he's this romantic figure as well as a sinister figure. Mm. And it's this like hypnotic edge to him. And she, um, yeah, basically underwent hypnosis for that scene. So that scene where it closes in on her face and then a tear rolls down her cheek, that was actually genuine, which is fascinating. Her and Tony Todd apparently got on really, really well on set. And to increase their on-screen chemistry, they had to attend like um, ballroom dancing lessons <laughs> to, to bond and get that kind of movement between the characters. On this podcast, we do like to talk about the what-ifs, and originally, the studio had wanted Eddie Murphy in the role of Candyman. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sorry, Eddie. I really I really love quite a lot of your work, Eddie, but, but no, I'm sorry. That just does not work for me. Tony Todd, he's got a commanding presence. He's physically quite imposing, but you're right. He's also got quite a seductive air about him. So I think he's absolutely perfect for the role. And you've got that voice as well. Tony Todd's voice. Even if you couldn't see Candyman, it's the voice that kind of sells you on the sort of power of the legend and the, the sort of danger that Candyman carries as well. I mean, Tony Todd is great. Eddie Murphy? No, I'm sorry. No, I, that, I don't see how that could have possibly worked. I mean, 
the and the other problem is that if you've got Eddie Murphy in a role that's playing on the sort of seductiveness and the danger with Eddie Murphy's history of comedy can you actually divorce him from things like Beverly Hills Cop when you when you see him in this sort of role I don't think I could no and he was too expensive and too short for the part <laughs> so that's the reason he didn't get cast in the end but yeah I agree with you I, I think because um we see him so much in that comedic role and he's very expressive we can't really imagine him as that sinister presence and yeah Tony Todd's voice that's on par with Vincent Price's voice for me in the horror world it's just he's just an incredible horror actor and again they cast him in Final Destination um, and he's a bit of a mysterious entity in that as well which I really love as for the part of Helen if Virginia Madsen hadn't worked out they were interested in casting Sandra Bullock in the part now we've obviously done an episode on Sandra Bullock I can kind of see it working but on the same time I'm not too sure yeah, I think better than Eddie Murphy, but I think there's something slightly dark about Virginia Madsen. She's very, she's she's this very classically beautiful blonde, but behind it all, there's something slightly darker going on behind the eyes. Sandra Bullock seems kind of too much of a girl next door. She seems too nice for the role, because I mean, Helen Lyle, she's very driven in terms of her research, and... Although she's got sympathy for the people that she's researching, there's part of her also, though, that's exploiting the people that she's researching for the fact that she's going to do this as part of her thesis. And regardless of the fact that she's being very friendly and very open with the people that she's talking to, there is still that force at play at the back where she's still using these people for her own ends to a certain extent. Not quite as badly as some other people would, but there's still that kind of exploitation going on at play. Now, could I see Sandra Bullock doing all of that? Maybe, but I think, I think again, casting-wise, now Virginia Madsen is pretty much perfect for this. Yeah, she is. The casting is top-notch in this film, and I wouldn't want to see anybody else in these roles. Um, it's just perfection in my eyes. So let's talk about bees. Yeah. <laughs> So bees are very prominent in Candyman um, because it um, is linked to the murder of Candyman, which is actually more prominent in the sequel rather than mm. this one. It's just like it's mentioned. They had a bee wrangler on set and the bees were from the same hive that um, killed Macaulay Culkin in My Girl. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> which blew my mind. So... Just like a, a hist history of murderous bees from this life. I mean, the bees don't specifically do for anybody in this movie. They don't. They don't actually murder anybody. They certainly don't murder Macaulay Culkin in this movie. But it makes for a couple of quite icky sequences. I mean, even if you're not particularly scared of bees, and I'm not at all. But I mean, if you see them in kind of hundreds. It is quite unpleasant, and there are points where Tony Todd's actually got bees coming out of his mouth, and that's that is quite gross, I have to say. And he wore a mouthpiece for that, obviously, understandably, but he did get stung, I believe, out of the three Candyman films he's appeared in, 26 times he's been stung. But every time he got stung, he had something like a thousand dollars added to his salary as compensation. They had like special props, equipment, whatever you want to call it, to ensure the safety of the, the cast members. But it's quite 
unsettling with the whole bees especially coming out of his mouth it's still a very powerful sequence apparently virginia madsen really didn't want to have these bees on her and she thought she was allergic to them so she had to go for tests and apparently it was wasps she was allergic to right but to do something like that for your craft is insane just yeah. The fact that it's all they have bees on them, it's not CGI, it's all real, it's just crazy. No, it's it's very clear that there's there's no digital effects in this one. The bees are crawling all over them. Virginia Manson doesn't look happy, I have to say, in that sequence where the bees are on it. And I don't blame her, to be perfectly honest. I do like the point that the they've um, expanded on the, the bee motif in the sequel. I mean, like a lot of the plot points in the first one, the sequel actually points them up, gives them a bit more life, explores them a little bit more. In terms of casting in the second one, you've got a bit of overlap because Vanessa Williams appears in both as Anne-Marie. I have to say that when I actually saw it, I just, I kind of remembered Vanessa Williams from the first one, but Vanessa Williams doesn't appear to have aged in the intervening, (laughs) in the intervening 30 years. I was thinking, is that, that the same actress? It looks like the same actress. And then when I got to the credits, yeah, obviously it wasn't. It was like, how has she not aged in 30 years? I mean, she looks amazing now. Because I was kind of thinking, oh, they've cast somebody who looks really like Vanessa Williams. And it's like, oh, no, no, it, it is Vanessa Williams. Vanessa Williams just doesn't age, apparently. Yeah, and I thought at first, oh, she must be his sister or something. I thought she just looked way too young to be his mum. And I just thought that was crazy. But it was great to see her back keeping up the continuity between both movies. But, yeah, in the new movie, I really like the use of puppetry, the shadow puppets, to um, explain the story. I thought that that was really, really imaginative and it got the point across and it was, it just added to the atmosphere. I really like like that kind of method of storytelling. And as you say, they you know retold the Helen Lyle story. It was really great to have that as the starting point as well, because when the discussion about uh, the urban legend of Candyman begins, they kind of talk about Helen Lyle before going back and um, uncovering all the history. There's so much about this sequel which is very smart and regardless of the fact that people have problems with the fact that there may be not be enough gore it's not scary enough i don't think they're going for something that's meant to be traditionally scary i think real life is scary enough without the jump sequences i mean there are a couple of jumps in but i don't think that's what they're driving for with the new movie i mean nia da costa has got a very distinct directorial style and it all looks great some of the points it makes are a little bit heavy-handed. I mean, the art world, some of the stuff that they're talking about in terms of like what's in and what's not, and there's a sequence where they're discussing a particular gallery and stuff, and it's that seems a bit too on the nose. It's it's satirical to the point where they're just hitting you over the head with it. But most of the time, it actually makes the right decisions in my book with what it's trying to do. The one thing I will say about the sequel is that there is a gay couple in it, which I think it's veering extremely close to stereotypes. I know what you mean, but I think it was important to have representation. I think part of that was um, Clive Barker, the original author, he's gay. He wanted representation. I know he's not technically really involved with this Candyman, but there was... um, something I read where that, that's kind of why they incorporated a gay interracial couple. And I think it is important to have representation on screen. 
maybe it wasn't portrayed in the um, most appropriate way, but I think, yeah, you've, you've got to just kind of not just stick to having, you know, attractive white people in yeah. heterosexual relationships all the time. It's boring. We just need diversity in movies across the board, not just horror, like in every genre. Absolutely. So yeah. We yeah. need more than that. I mean, like we watch all these Hallmark films and they're just very, very like stereotypical. Like maybe it would be more interesting if they shook it up a bit and actually did more gay Hallmark films, for example. But I'm yeah. going off on a different tangent altogether there. No, I'd, I'd, I'd uh, go for a gay Hallmark movie. I mean, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that uh, will be round the corner. You're right. I mean, representation is important. I think it's important that they had a gay interracial couple in this. Uh, did one of them have to be quite so camp? I mean, I'm guessing, you know, they're sort of showing the spectrum. And to be perfectly honest, the the extremely gay guy gets most of the good lines in the movie. He's very sassy. It's kind of swings and roundabouts with that. And for me to gripe about it, it's probably a bit of a minor gripe anyway. It's just that um, when it's so sure-handed with some of its other stuff, it just took me aback a little bit that, you know, that you got somebody who was so kind of stereotypically gay in this movie. But at least you've got homosexual characters in this movie. It's, it's not a kind of, it's not whitey central and it's not kind of straight whitey central. One of the other things, and I'm going to go skip to the end as well, and so this is a real spoiler, is having had a discussion with a few people about the very end of the movie, the idea of Candyman as some sort of avenging angel who carves us way through some fairly brutal white cops. I mean, I think some people thought that was kind of playing to the gallery a little bit too much. I thought that it wasn't really. I mean, I think that one of the characters realised that they could use Candyman for their own ends to right a social injustice of some sort. And that's why that was played in. I mean, yes, it's a bit of a left turn considering what's been in the rest of the movie. But I don't think it was so out of left field that it didn't work. And it kind of opened up a potential sequel to some fairly interesting interpretations of where it might go. Yeah, I, I mean, I had no issues with the ending. If you just look at it from the film's point of view without thinking too deeply into it and um, taking this like social stance, you know, if you're watching the movie for your entertainment, at the end of the day, the cops kill Anthony unlawfully and then his girlfriend summons him back for revenge. Because let's face it, all these horror movies mainly are centred around some sort of vengeance. We spoke about The Burning in the last episode, that's a movie about vengeance. It is very much at the core of a lot of horror, so I didn't see any problem with it. The whole movie, though, I was anticipating. I was like, when is he coming on? When, when is Tony <laughs> Todd going to appear? Because what I did suspect is when I was seeing a bit of a negative backlash about Candyman, I thought, is it after seeing it, I thought, is it because there's more than one Candyman? That was, I thought, did people have a problem with that story element? But... I kept like thinking, I want to see Tony Todd because I will be honest, the other Candyman, apart from Anthony, weren't as effective for me. But that's just because I've so much love for the 1992 movie and that's who I see in that role. But it, yeah, I was very, very satisfied of how the movie ends when yeah. we see him. So I was yeah. very happy with that. Yeah. And they digitally de-aged his face as well. They did, yes. <laughs> but yeah, if you, if you are a fan of Tony Todd, you have to wait a while in this in the new movie but you will not be disappointed when he shows up on screen 
the the other slightly odd detail that it takes, and I don't think it necessarily works a hundred percent, is the sequence in the high school where it kind of goes off at a slight tangent for about five minutes, where it focuses on an incident in a high school where some girls have summoned Candyman, and what it does is it ups the body count and it gives you a bit of a set piece in the midst of all this, you know, social commentary. Does it totally work? I mean, as a as a horror sequence, it does work for me, but does it belong in the movie? It's kind of seemed to wander in from a different film. It's kind of Candyman on tour, that bit. It's, it's, I mean, I don't think it's so blunt that it doesn't work entirely but i think the movie would have worked without that sequencing completely i think they could have skipped that it wouldn't have been any worse a movie for it but that's just my opinion there's always a scene in some toilets isn't there <laughs> yeah, there is like, yeah. halloween's done it screams done it you know probably a complete multitude of horror movies have done it but yeah it was very trophy that scene and and it wasn't really focused on any particular character either. So whether it was just to kind of signify that, you know, Candyman is rampaging through the town and just murdering everybody left, right and centre. Because I suppose in the original movie, you have that scene in the house with the couple where they decide to summon Candyman. But that's in the context of they're describing the urban legend. So it's yeah. given you a visual and it, and, and it does tie him up because it, it is that whole, it's a babysitter alone at night boyfriend comes over, something gruesome happens. It just all ties in with that notion of urban legend, so it works there. But yeah, this one didn't really fit. I suppose if the teenage girl that is kind of focused on, if she'd been more of a character, it may have worked. Like if she was, I don't know, maybe an aspiring artist or something and, and was um, involved in the gallery in some way. If, if they'd done, and she was like a friend of the, the protagonist, I think maybe... It would have worked, but it was, yeah, it's a bit out of left field and very stereotypical for horror yeah. movie carnage. Yeah. Ted Raimi as the boyfriend in the original one as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, that's, I'd forgotten Ted Raimi was in it. I was like very pleased to see him. I was like, oh yeah, Ted Raimi. Yeah. He's, I mean, he isn't in it for very long, of course, but you know, he's a, he's an important part of the plot in the first one. I mean, I think in the, in the sequel, it's kind of giving you that idea that, you know, Candyman is more of an idea and it's part of the hive. Candyman isn't just one being. It's different things to different people and different versions of Candyman will show up, which is developed from the idea of the first one. But yeah, you're right. It's, it was very tropey. In a movie that steers away from tropes for most of its running time, that one particular sequence, I think it, it put all of its tropes into one sequence and says, right, okay, there you go. If you want horror movie tropes, we're going to do it in one particular scene and then we're going to go back to the approach that we've taken for the rest of the movie. I think another thing as well, uh, I'm not going to say that this is a negative about the new movie, but there's an awful lot going on in the new one. There's so many plot threads and there's so many ideas and there's so many possibilities where it can spin off. It's almost like it could have done with being slightly longer. For me, it sort of yeah. felt, it felt, I don't think it fell short in what it was trying to do, but I don't think some of the ideas are totally developed as much as they could be. Fair play to them for making it 90 minutes, because very few movies are 90 minutes, even horror movies these days that make it to the big screen. But at the same time, 
I could have probably done with a little bit more explanation. Felt like, you know, they could have let the plot breathe a little bit more. Again, minor gripe. <laughs> yeah, and this one is actually the shortest Candyman film out of the four movies. So, yeah, I agree with you that it, it did try to squeeze too much in. Because the whole time as it was progressing, I was like, where is this going? Where is this going? I, you know, I was really um, captivated by it. But, yeah, I think it could have done a little bit more. Maybe taken out that whole bathroom sequence. But I'm, I'm wondering if that was just playing to mainstream audiences. Because I think with this movie, you do kind of have to see the original. I know it recaps stuff, but I think it is very important to see the original. I think you've got to have an attachment to it. But that could go either way because you could be so attached to the original that you can't be open-minded about the new one or like me you can in enjoy both but yeah i just i just wondered what that whole motive was with that bathroom sequence whether it was just to you know draw in regular people but yeah not, not horror people yeah. <laughs> that's what i mean could have been could have been throwing the sort of i mean i'm not even going to say mainstream horror fan but, but you know throwing the sort of people who like Slash is a bit of a bone because the rest of it is so far away from a conventional slasher movie that they may have thought, you know what, we're going to throw something in which is just shamelessly borrowing from various other slasher movies, which is why it just feels a little bit out of place because the rest of it is quite assuredly put together and in a certain way, whereas that sequence just feels like it's been dropped in. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the thinking was behind it. It doesn't derail the movie, but it just takes a detail that I don't think it necessarily needs. But I'm not going to sit here and say that uh, Nia DaCosta has made a terrible movie just because of that one sequence. And so I'm sure lots of people loved that sequence because it delivers it on the gore and the, the scares and the set pieces. So that's fair enough. To be perfectly honest, despite... The fact that it has very mixed reviews from the new Candyman, I loved it. I really, really loved it. And I think it's it's brave of Nia DaCosta to take an acknowledged classic of the genre and to put a massively different spin on it. Definitely. And it's been a triumph in the sense that it went to number one at the box office and the first time it's been a um, African-American female director, which is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Like it shows progress. It's progression, isn't it? Um, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I really like what she did with this film because nobody wants a retelling of the first. We don't need that. We've, we've got the first movie. But to do something a bit more creative and imaginative with it, that's... Um... Yeah, I mean, it takes some guts to take a property like Candyman and to give it something that's so of itself and such an individual take on it. Yes, I think that there are people who will see the first movie and see the new one. And really rabid fans of the first movie might hate this one because it doesn't go in the directions that you think it's going to. But it's precisely because, as you say, it doesn't retell the first one, which is what makes the new one so interesting. Yes, you can pick holes in its viewpoints on various things, but to say that it's too woke or too political again i'm going to go back to the first one the first one is quite political and quite satirical and i don't know how you can get past that so the, i mean the remake is just building on what they did in the first one i don't see anything wrong with that i do like the fact as well at the end that 
you get some more kind of shadow puppets. So you get the origins and the story of all five Candymen. If you stay around, if you stick around in the credits, you'll see the different stories of all the Candymen as it plays out, which is a nice way to end the movie. Yeah, and in the screening that I went to see, the whole audience were just silent, just captivated by that credit sequence, and that nobody got up until it had completely finished. That, I, mean, no, I love that. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a sign of, of, well, A, a good movie, and B, a really nicely put-together post-credits set of stings. When it comes to the big question, which is the better movie, I think this is like comparing apples and oranges. I don't think you can set these movies side by side and objectively say which is the better one because they've got such different styles the first one is very much a i mean it's not even a big studio slasher i mean it was it did have a decent amount of money behind it and it's got some fairly extensive talent behind the camera which obviously got took a bit of cash to put together and it's got some great talent in front of the camera as well it's more of a straightforward slasher than the new one, but it still isn't that straightforward. The new one, I mean, I've seen people say it's horror adjacent, the new one. Um, I mean, it is a horror movie. I think regardless of the fact that it might not have people dropping out of cupboards, there's not jump scares every five seconds. That still doesn't mean that it isn't a horror movie. It's definitely a horror movie, the new one. I think it's just maybe not the horror movie a lot of people were expecting. And as, as I've said before, a lot of the horror comes from the fact that real life is horrific for these people. And the fact that you've got this mythical figure going around murdering people is just the icing on top of a very shitty cake. Definitely. So I think if I had to choose, I would always go for the original. That's where my heart lies, just because it's one of my favourite horror movies of all time. It's so well performed. It's very sophisticatedly done in terms of the horror and the thriller aspect and the intrigue. It's just beyond atmospheric. It just really lures you in and captivates you. The score is absolutely stunning by Philip Glass. I even walked down the aisle to that score at my wedding, so that's how much I love it. I think, yeah, there's always just going to be that draw to that one. Tony Todd's a big aspect of that as well, and the nostalgia that is attached to it as well, renting it out on VHS and finally uncovering what Candyman was, was all about and it's just becoming one of my favourite horror films. And, you know, I did love the new one. I think it's a very, very strong movie. Again, it's got that sophistication. It's very stylish. It's interesting. I love following Anthony's journey in it. But I think, I think it's a nice tie-in. I like how it expanded it. I like how it was creative in doing something completely different while remaining faithful to the original um, source material. But I think I'm always going to go for the 1992 version. But I am looking forward to re-watching the new one when it either comes out on the streaming or DVD or Blu-ray, um, just because I want to give it a second viewing and see how I feel next time round. Yeah, I think it possibly is a movie that rewards more than one viewing because, as I said before, there's so much going on. I probably did miss quite a lot of it while it was going on because I was swept up in the atmosphere and the various possibilities that the plot was throwing out there. So I'd be interested in seeing it a second time. I really do love the original, but I've seen it so many times now that I think to set it against the new one, it's slightly unfair of me to do so because like one viewing, but um, it's great that both movies have got 
such a an iconic pull because the first one's always going to be a classic but the new one i think there's enough about it that's original and interesting that i suspect that in a few years time people are going to revisit it and be a lot kinder to it than they are now yeah and it's quite interesting how they're both called Candyman because there seems to be a new trend in horror now where if you're going to remake or create a sequel to a classic horror film, you're just going to call it the same title. So we've already had Halloween and Halloween and we're also going to be getting Scream 5. I keep calling it Scream 5, but it's actually going to be just called Scream, even though it's the fifth instalment and it yeah. is a sequel to the rest of the films. So it's just really interesting. I don't know whether it's just to look more slick or draw audiences in thinking... Are they going to get a like a remake or something completely new? I'm not sure, but it's just a, a new a new trend that um, horrors uh, set out in the last couple of years. So I'm I'm waiting for the remake of the Bogeyman. Oh, that film you made me watch at the start of these uh, podcast episodes. Yeah, I think I think that's right. For, <laughs> it's right for a remake, and they should they should just call it well. I mean, the Bogeyman or the Bogeyman, depending on which side of the pond you're on. But yeah, same title, same kind of plot. Anybody out there who's thinking about remaking Uli Lomel's movie, go for it, because I'll be watching it. You'll be the only one. (laughs) (laughs) I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 41 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and would like to check out more of our episodes, you can follow us on all our social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. Next, episode 42. And all this earlier talk of childhood trauma and Macaulay Culkin getting attacked by bees gave us a bit of an idea for the next episode. So we're going to take a look at movies from childhood, which maybe didn't have the intended effect in so much as they traumatised the viewer to a certain extent so what are we going to be having a look at next time well it's going to be all about death and the temptations with 1991's my girl yeah we couldn't have talked about macaulay getting done in by the bees without actually covering the movie for the second one we're doing something very very strange indeed and it's not my childhood trauma it's my wife's childhood trauma it's the 1978 movie, Laser Blast, directed by Michael Ray. It's such a weird movie. I cannot wait to revisit this. And I've never seen this movie before, and I've literally just heard about it. So I'm excited to check it out. And it is available on YouTube if you guys want to check it out with us. Get on it, Laser Blast fans. Until then, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bain. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.